You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Man, I love Lucy. And you know what? I write about Lucille Ball in my upcoming book, Skip the Line. I have a small section on her because she really is a great example of choosing herself. Like, her movie career had basically ended around the time she was 40 years old and she had nothing going on. She was doing some radio shows and those were kind of declining, but CBS wanted to do this brand new thing. Hey, let's do a, a TV series, you know, a, a situational comedy. And she wanted to have her husband, Desi Arnaz, be her husband on the show, but CBS didn't want an interracial relationship on TV. So the story of how she made the most successful TV show ever in history and the story of just her, her talent and her success is incredible. But not only that, my friend Darren Strauss wrote a novel that just came out. It's called The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story. He's a great novelist, but he interweaves his family's personal story, which is very interesting and maybe even shocking with Lucille Ball into it 
It's a great novel. We talk about we talk about everything from writing, Lucille Ball, choosing yourself, what the current trends are in media, and then and, and you know more fun stories about writing. Jay, what else did we talk about? Uh, you guys did talk about Star Trek. Actually, it was pitch. What? Oh yeah, we talked about Star Trek. I didn't know that one thing about Star Trek and Mission Impossible. And then, um, as Jay does, he he hit record when we were just kind of doing our intro chatting in in the beginning. And it's a really fun episode. So here it is, Darren Strauss and the Lucille Ball story. A lot of things I didn't know. Where are you located? I am in New York City. I mean, I'm not in New York City at the moment, but I live in New York City. And right now I'm in uh, Key Biscayne, Florida. Oh, nice. I was in New York City all through the lockdowns. And then around uh, July, uh, give or take, I decided to spend a few months down here. So Yeah, it was a tough period here, I have to say. I mean, I, I, got a, I went to Maine for a long stretch. Yeah, it's most tough. people I know I, I, that. I was gonna say I'm pro I'm pro New York though I'm not I'm not down with people moving out I think you know we gotta we gotta stay here we gotta prop the city up I think it's 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 lame to leave when when things get hard it's a great town I don't want to I don't want to give up on it well I'm pro New York as well but I found a lot of important people were in denial of the real issues simmering underneath and I tried I can't even tell you how many people I've called on both sides of the aisle. Uh, everybody from like the the Federal Reserve to mayoral candidates to officials on on both sides in Congress and in the executive branch about the problems New York City was facing and possible solutions. And I just found the the real kind of simmering problems underneath, some of which are virus related and lockdown related, are just nobody, everybody I was talking to was in denial about both the problems and what I saw as potential solutions. So, but I got I got some backlash when I when I wrote about it, but that's that's another topic. Have you thought about running for office? No. <laughs> a lot of people asked me to actually because yes, I got a backlash on this, but a lot of people also agreed with me that there's problems that are being ignored and that are in denial and wanted me to run for something. Like there's open seats in state assembly, there's open seats on the city council. There, there's a lot of different open seats because people aren't running. Yeah, I feel like we need people with good ideas and you obviously have them. And you know, there are underlying issues in the city that need to be addressed. I mean, that's true. And it's what was striking to me is that zero people I spoke to we're thinking about short-term solutions. I mean, everybody kind of says, oh, it'll bounce back because of grit or whatever. Um, but but it's but since I even wrote my initial summary of this, the data has gotten so much worse. Okay. And uh, you know, and now it's just a wait and see what happens. But we're not here to talk about that. I really want to talk about your excellent book. The Queen of Tuesday, uh, and I call it a book instead of a novel. It is a novel, but there's a little bit of fictionalized autobiography slash memoir. And I even love how you bring it to the present day as well. Uh, and we have a mutual friend, of course, in some of your italicized chapters. Hmm. The book is about Lucille Ball and your grandfather's interactions with her. Let's just—I want to put it that way for for a second. 
I love the Lucille Ball story for many reasons. In fact, in the upcoming book I have, I have a whole section on Lucille Ball for obviously different reasons than you. No, nobody in my family knew her in the way that your grandfather did. But I just wanted to ask you, like, you you also wrote some amazing books, uh, Chang and Eng, which is a fictionalized version of the, the famous Siamese twins, which I thought was just, even when I first saw the book, this is, it's just like almost 20 years ago, right? This book came out. Yeah, yeah. I thought this was such an amazing concept to write a fictionalized version because everyone looks at the Guinness Book of World Records when they're little kids or, or whatever it is, the Almanac of the Strange, whatever those little pop books that kids would read back in the 70s. And Chang and Eng, it's like, what the hell? How could this happen? And, and then they got married and then they got 21 kids, but they're attached to each other. What a great concept to write a, a book about that. So before I ask you about Lucille Ball, this was your first published novel, Chang and Eng. What happened? Oh, thanks, James. I appreciate that. Yeah, I. so I was going to graduate school in New York City, uh, and everyone was writing these autobiographical books. And I just thought, you know, my life isn't that interesting. I'm going to, I want to sell my first book, so I should find a really good story. Because everyone was just writing these very small, uh, personalized stories. And I thought, well, they're zigging. I want to zag. So what, what is a really good story? And I was homesick from work. And uh, on Oprah, she had these conjoined twins on. And they were eight-year-old girls. And at the same time, without being asked a question, they jumped up and said, we're a big girl now. And I just thought, what a fascinating sentence. We're a big girl now. So they obviously saw themselves as two people and one person at the same time. So that I thought was such a fascinating thing. I thought I could write something about that. And then in the first day of research, I came across the story of Chang and Ang Bunker, who were, as you mentioned, very famous conjoined twins. They were from Siam, which is now Thailand. And so they were so famous that the term Siamese twins just comes from them. And as you mentioned, they had 21 kids, they married sisters, they got caught up in the civil war. So, you know, the country's trying to break apart and brothers fighting brother and they're trying to split apart and fighting. And I just thought, I can't believe no one's written this story. I felt like I had been given this great gift. And so I just jumped at it. And, uh, and that's sort of been my guiding principle. People have asked me, you know, you write historical fiction and non-historical fiction why is that? And I said, you know, I just, I, I want to write a really good story. So I always just go casting around for good stories, which you'd think would be self-evident, but so many writers, I think, don't choose to write big, exciting stories. I, I once um, did this event for Barnes and Noble and this corporate person at Barnes and Noble said to me, you know, there are two kinds of books, literary books, which you read slowly and fun books, which you read fast. And I thought, I'm going to spend the rest of my career trying to prove her wrong, that you can have a literary book that is also a page turner. Yeah, I agree with you. And I feel, and you mentioned that people like, let's say in the 90s, late 90s, were writing what I'm going to call these MFA style, quote unquote, literary reflective novels about a relationship they had with a professor, you know, <laughs> and uh, and it was kind of just, I appreciate, in a lot of those novels or, or collections of short stories, I appreciated the language and, and let's say the poetry of it, but you're right. The stories weren't compelling. And then I, you'd almost have to get a fix on, okay, now I'm going to read the latest John Grisham, which has no literary aspirations, but is a page turner. 
and you know both sides would look down on the other and i and i always felt like there's a role for both but also it would be great and there are some books in the middle that are that are good i would say like fight club is sort of is comes out there in the middle where it's like almost a horror but it's very literary and there's there's quite a few books i feel that mm -hmm. have that middle ground but yeah writing Chang and Eng, which you can argue is in the genre of historical fiction. I would not argue that at all. It was a very literary book and you have a very literary style. It, and that's exhibited the most, I feel, in this this book that just came out, The Queen of Tuesday, about Lucille Ball, where you're really taking chances. You're mixing genres with literary, with memoir, with this fictionalized story with Lucille Ball. I, I see in the in the reviews some people who are like, Lucille Ball purists, like you feel like they watched I Love Lucy when they were 10 years old in 1951 and they wanted to just relive that experience. And so they didn't want any fictionalized version of what they're reading about it. But, you know, that aside, it's a very beautiful book. It's very literary and you could see, and this is what I think, and I'm curious if you agree, and then we'll we'll talk more about the book, but it feels like every book, even Chang and Ang or The Queen of Tuesday, Ultimately, a great novel is memoir because you're going to tell your own views and perceptions, like the voices of all the characters are really your voice ultimately. Yeah, that's a great point. And thanks for the kind words, James. But yeah, I mean, uh, well, a couple of things. One, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, uh, I think that the characters who are closest to me in the books I've written uh, are people whose biography is the furthest from mine. So I wrote a book called More Than It Hurts You, where the protagonist is an African-American woman. And I feel like her and uh, and Chang, I'm sorry, Ang and Chang and Ang are the people who are most like me in my books. And so, yeah, I think you sneak yourself into all the different characters if you can. But getting back to like the big story thing, John Updike once said that that's what Moby Dick was. He said after Moby Dick, for some reason, American literature kind of split in two, where some people would take the really big stories and some people would focus on language and character. And he said, you know, it's a shame that more books don't do both. And so I felt like, yeah, I want to write good, because you mentioned reflective uh, characters in literary fiction. So I thought, yeah, I want to have deep characters and I want to have good prose, but I also want to tell a story that is something that means something to people. And so with this book, like you mentioned, it's a mix. I, I wanted to try a bunch of different things. I thought, I've written a bunch of books. This is going to try to combine all that I've learned how to do. So it's it's a weird mix, but I thought it would be the most fun way to do it if I could combine biography. So it's like a biography of Lucille Ball's golden period. Uh, it's a family memoir. It's about my grandfather and my grandparents. And then it's a novel about the love affair between Lucille and my grandfather, which is fictionalized. So it's it's all three. I felt like this would be the most fun way to tell the story of Lucille Ball, who I think, as you mentioned, is a fascinating person who's worth writing about. I know you're writing about her too. I mean, I think she's just kind of an amazing figure. Well, our, our mutual agent, Suzanne Gluck, who is a character in your novel, <laughs> uh, uh, I think wanted to introduce us for this, so I'd like to talk about Lucille Ball first and then talk about your your novel uh, because she is such an interesting character. She uh, essentially defined or created sitcom television in, in the mid 20th century. And, you know, probably in terms of percentage of homes viewed in, it's probably the most popular show in history and nothing will 
ever replace it. I think only a few shows were even close, which is like the Andy Griffith show and maybe Seinfeld. What was really interesting to me about her is that she sort of half succeeded, half failed throughout a pretty big career from the time she was a teenager to her 40s until really finding success. And I, and most people don't know this. This is like inspirational for young people who have feel like they failed by the age of 27. Mm-hmm. And, but also she didn't pander for success. So like when, you know, the critical moment being when they wanted her to do the TV show, I Love Lucy, but they didn't want her to cast a Cuban, her husband, as her husband. She said no. When here she is desperate for success and she says no to that for many reasons, which you point out also in the book, but she then makes a decision. They're going to go do this vaudeville act on the road, show that the American people are ready for a Cuban co-star. It was hugely successful. And then CBS was like, okay, let's do it. And I thought that was a very gritty and risky thing to do. Yeah, it's incredible. I think, you know, when you mentioned it, she, she lived in upstate New York and at 16 years old, she ran away and came to Manhattan to try to make it on Broadway. And they t- she was told by a producer, you're not funny. You're not a good singer. You can't dance. You're not pretty. You're not talented. You have no shot. Go home. And she kept trying. She, she ran away from home 10 times before she finished high school and then failed in New York, went to LA, basically failed out there too. You mentioned she had some success over a long career. She was for a while called the queen of the bees where she did a bunch of B movies, but then started to fail at that. She was fired from MGM, fired from the studio RKO. And really TV was, as you mentioned, her last shot. And TV before her wasn't such a big medium. It was sort of thought of as third on the totem pole below movies and radio. So it was like, well, I guess I'll try this last ditch thing. And then, as you mentioned, they said, well, we don't want to show a white woman married to a Cuban man because you know, it was 1951 and there was a very racist time in a lot of ways. And so she risked everything to get her husband on the show and forced them to see that it would work. And then, as you mentioned, had greater success, not only than anyone before, but really than anyone had imagined was possible for this medium. Her show was so popular that it was something like 88% of homes with a TV would tune in. Not 88% of people watching TV, but homes with TV. That means counting people who were out to dinner. So something like in the 90% 90s percentile wise of viewers were watching her show, which is insane if you think about it today when it's so fractured, the audience. Her show had the equivalent of 85 million viewers a week which is just nuts. I think the biggest show now is 8 million. Right. And uh, for all seasons except one, she was the number one show in the country, which I think beats out every other sitcom since then. Uh, Only American Idol and NFL Sunday football beats it. So basically she's the top sitcom ever. And most people don't know this. I mean, my wife was surprised when I told her. She and Desi Arnaz, of course, started the production company, Desi Lou, which produced I Love Lucy, among other things. But most people don't realize it also produced Star Trek and Mission Impossible. Yeah. In fact, no one was going to take a chance on Star Trek, which I think makes her a very important figure too, because Star Trek pretty much redefined American culture because without Star Trek, there'd be no Star Wars. Without Star Wars, we wouldn't have sort of blockbuster culture. And no one wanted that show. It was pitched as a UN in space, which, you know, sounds particularly unpromising. 
I had no that. idea that was Jay. Did you know that that Star Trek was pitched as UN in space? Uh, yeah, I think so. I do know. What that. an odd pitch! Like, I could just see them like in the in the Hollywood typical pitch scene. You take the UN and you take <laughs> space, combine them. <laughs> Who the hell would want that? Lucille Ball for some reason. Yeah, and you know, and Mission Impossible too, which is you know a huge cultural thing. So, what a figure she was. You know, she um she was also the first female mogul in Hollywood. So, when Desi, her husband, had drinking problems, she took over the studio. So at one point, she owned more studio space than any studio, any other single studio in in Hollywood. And she, and this I think is very poetic. She ended up buying the studio spaces of MGM and RKO, the two studios that had fired her. And by the way, it still happens that women in particular might have middling success in movies or whatever. And then starting around the age of 40, it's like almost a cliche joke. Like Amy Schumer even did uh, a, a scene on this in Inside Amy Schumer where Julie Louis-Dreyfus, Tina Fey, all these like 40-ish actresses, this was about eight years ago, six years ago, kind of get together to sail off into the sunset because they're turning 40 or they're above 40. But Lucille Ball, you know, sort of found her voice or found her footing by going into probably was at the time a stigmatized genre, which was television. Like, you know, nobody was doing sitcoms. And this is early, this is 1951. Like TVs were just getting popular. Yes. And, uh, and I think that's right. That That's a great point, which I've, I think I should mention more often when I talk about the book 40 was when she began really as a superstar. And, you know, it, it is a truism, as you mentioned, that women and after 40 uh, have a really tough time in Hollywood, especially back then when it was even more misogynistic than now. And she broke through at 40. Literally, that was the that was her age, 40. Do you think she made money in the B movies? Like, do you know how much money she would make in like a, a 1938 movie where she's not you know it's not the hugest thing in the world i don't know i don't know specifically what she would make per movie but i know she lived a very comfortable life i mean the the studio system back then was really powerful uh but movies were so big because you know because tv wasn't a thing uh i think she lived a really nice life as a as a b-movie actress she and she also was a communist. That was another interesting thing. She she had a, a period when she was a B-movie actress that she was an avowed communist and would have these communist party meetings, at least one known party meeting in her mansion, which is kind in of In her funny. mansion? Yeah. So did, so did she have a mansion off of the, the B-movie income? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the thing about B-movies is that you could make 20 of them a year, 15 of them a year. If you look at her filmography it's pretty nuts i mean she was in like 30 35 movies before being on on the air yeah it always amazes me and not just with her, with her with almost any actor or actress you think of them from their their big movies but then you look at their filmography and they're in like a thousand movies she <laughs> and... was in some funny ones like weird titles like a girl a guy and a gob i don't even know what that means and then she did, and and this is where I Love Lucy comes in. She did uh, a bunch of radio shows, which is weird because I don't even know if that's anymore a thing. But like, what was the radio show that I Love Lucy was was based on? Was it? Um, it was something like My Favorite Husband. My Favorite Husband, yeah. 
and I, you know, it's really interesting to me. So I've, I've been approached by a, by a podcast company to write some scripted podcasts. And, uh, I thought, you know, it's just like radio plays. It's basically the old 1930s model where you would tell a story only over audio. Yeah. I, I, and I was about to ask about that because of course we're doing a podcast right now and I always follow the industry and for a while, and I don't know if this is still true. It probably is, but like fictionalized, you know, serial, you know, episodic, uh, podcast series are a thing, which is really weird considering the last time it was a thing was like 1938 or yeah. 1948, whatever. So I don't know what the appeal is, but then also, you know, audiobooks are getting, are, you know, are trending upwards for the past, you know, six, seven years. So people, I guess, commuting to work or in the gym, you know, have reawakened, you know, the, the audio format in, in a way differently from traditional radio. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I've looked into the form. It's hard to tell a story just over, just, just with sounds, you know? Um, I also wrote a comic book once, which is sort of the opposite. Olivia um, Twist. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. Thanks. I, I thought, you know, it would be kind of interesting to take Oliver Twist and make it sci-fi and put Olivia in the, in the future, uh, make a, Oliver Olivia. And so that was, that was not so literary. That's, that's more, that's more for fun, but I'm looking now at her, her filmography here. And in 1935, she did one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine films in one year. So yeah, I think that's why she had that money. Even if they were B movie roles, you know, you do nine movies a year for, from 1935 to 1950. That's a lot of money. Well, actually, let's just see if a random. Okay, so let's let's just take her last one of her last ones. Uh, here's one she's co-starring with Henry Fonda. Oh no, that's that, that's not 1968. Okay, let's take The Big Street, co-starring Henry Fonda. Uh, so it's it's a decent role, decent movie. They must have had a decent budget. It's a good movie. It's a good movie, actually. I never saw it. Yeah, I, I you know I watched a bunch of her movies because uh, in research. Um, she was quite good in that. She was making a thousand dollars a week, which you know that's like making I don't know twenty or thirty thousand dollars a week during the filming of that movie. Yeah, that's the nineteen forty-two. So what would that be? Inflation calculator. Like a twenty uh, x. Yeah. So yeah, twenty thousand a week. You know, nineteen forty. Also, I'm always amazed when we look at the past and how much further money went. You had so many fewer things to spend money on. Like you know, <laughs> so many things you have to spend money on. You know, you want like a cable TV, a streaming service, a music service, like everything costs so much money now. I feel like 20,000 a week back then, <laughs> there's so many fewer things to spend money on, right? Yeah, because think about it, back in like 19, well, particularly also you're living in the, in at that time it was around the Great Depression and World War II, so there was uh, deflation and rationing. So it's almost as if they were living in a permanent economic lockdown because there were very few things to spend money on during the economic lockdowns uh, mm. during this virus. So it was a similar type of type of thing. But but you're right, and and she even admits she was she was she like she says about the big street. It was a regular check, but she was a, a, just still a regular B actress. And that and you know, at turning forty, she's not going to be playing in these sexy co-starring roles. But roles. But let me ask you this because and this starts to get into your into the timeline of your book. When you watch The Big Street, was she, you know, kind of have the clown-like or comedic role that she would later be famous for in the TV series? 
No, actually, it's a it's a noir, and she played it straight. I mean, there are there are a couple of movies where she's just like a, a straight ahead noir kind of siren, trading on her sex appeal. I mean, she was a beautiful woman. I mean, it's interesting. She was very sort of self-conscious too. She would always talk about how she wasn't talented and wasn't pretty. And I think she was all those things. Um, she she was a, an interesting talent because she couldn't write her own jokes. And so she was really dependent on the other people being good. But I think if she had really good material, she was great. Like uh, on that show, I think she's a, really a kind of brilliant comic actress. Well, you know, a lot of very well-known, successful actors and actresses, I shouldn't say a lot, but many of them study, and this is gonna sound weird, but to people who don't know about it, but they study clown theory. So it's not clown like in a circus, but there's a real art form to being a clown where you use your authenticity and the language of your body to basically make an audience like practically die from laughter. And there's various schools on clown theory, but she was like a, a natural clown and you, you refer to this in the book and there's this one line where you know she's starting to do i love lucy and you write she's she's thinking to herself the best actors don't quite deliver memorized lines they speak their own spontaneous thoughts that happen to have been written beforehand by someone else that's not skill that's not a technique or even art lucille realizes my brain just thinks exactly what the writers guess the character would think only my brain thinks it more correctly more fiercely and it's because i think they finally they got they like lucked into this role where she's able to take this natural amazing clown ability which is not an easy ability and 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 as she, as you speak through her she's able to accentuate it accentuate the words of the writers and play that role with her full body and authenticity which we see which is why america loved lucy to, yeah. to this day. Yeah, I mean, I, I did some research into acting. I didn't know anything about acting, but I did some research and I felt like that was what she would have thought. I mean, it, it is an interesting skill and uh, and it's so dependent on other people. You know, a writer, a musician, you can kind of make your own luck in a way. You know, if you write a good book, it's your book. If you, if you play music, you, that's the music you're playing. If you're an actor, you need someone to give you a good script and then to direct you well. And so it's, I think it's, that's why a lot of actors that I've met are, I think, quite um, self-conscious because it, they're so dependent on other people. I think it makes you sort of lack confidence in yourself in a way. I mean, it, that's the thing I've noticed about so many of the actors I've met that they are sort of lacking in some confidence. You know, it's funny because they're so charismatic. Yeah, but they're they're charismatic to the screen, but that doesn't say anything about who they are. And I'm not, this is not a, a criticism of them. It just might be they're not, maybe they're charismatic on the screen, but they're an introvert and, and shy in real life or who knows. Mm -hmm. So, but, but she, you know, had this, you know, B list skill as an actress. She was a dancer. She was this, she was that, but really she, she physical comedy. It was her thing. Her face had, you know, a, a, a much greater vocabulary of expressions, I think, than than many actors and actresses. Her her she was her body had that authentic comedic clown like thing going on. So they would write these lines for her. She wouldn't just say them. She would take those words and really be that character. This this was her. And again, I think that propelled her from being known 
to being, you know, world famous slash celebrity? I think you said it so well. Her face had a real, really wide vocabulary uh, of expressions. And I think that's the key right there. And they did love her and they do love her. I mean, I, I've heard from so many people since the book came out. I heard from a friend of hers who knew her and kind of reached out to me. And that was sort of wild, you know. What, what did she say? Uh, it was him. It was, this, it was this guy, Lee Tannen. He wrote a book about her, about his friendship with her. And he said he, it was really nice. He said he was very skeptical of the book because it's, you know, fictionalized. But he said he read it and felt like he was listening to her talk. He said, you really got her. And that was shocking to him. And so that, that was one of my favorite reviews. Even, you know, it's gotten, I've been lucky with the reviews in, in real places. But to hear from a friend of hers that um, I captured her voice and he felt like he was listening to her and hanging out with her. That was great. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and Having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly 
or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I was just talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. I want to get into the other aspects of the book, but what else did you learn about? Did you learn anything new about Lucille Ball in your research that surprised you? I mean, and again, I think the most inspiring thing is that she almost dictated, I should say, her own career. She wouldn't let the producers ultimately tell her what to do, even if that risked her career being over. And and in particular, you know, the, the choice of forcing them to have uh, Desi Arnaz in, in the role of her husband. Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's so much about it that is so um, praiseworthy uh, and that, that surprised me. You know, all the all the trailblazing stuff we talked about, how, how popular she was, how she was the first woman to do all this stuff. She was the first pregnant female body shown on television. But the thing that surprised me the most, I guess, was Desi's behavior and how this very strong, very uh, powerful, courageous, beloved woman was just humiliated again and again by him at the height of the show. And I wrote something about this for Vanity Fair, actually, at the height of her show's popularity. Um, she was, uh, uh, he was rather, Desi was caught by Hollywood Confidential Magazine 
with two prostitutes. So this is, you know, the 1950s, a very uh, prudish time when couples, even married couples, couldn't be shown sleeping in the same bed because sex was something that was so uh, verboten on television that we couldn't even have a bed where a married couple would sleep. At the same I time, think that lasted through the 70s too. That, that lasted a long time. Yeah, and, and as, as that's happening in the 50s, there's a story in a magazine saying, yeah, here's Desi Arnaz with two prostitutes. And it was, it was widely known. But the show was so beloved that it just was pushed through. People just didn't care. But that's humiliating for anyone. But imagine that being in public, your husband cheating on you. And we talked about a bunch about why, how she pushed CBS to have him as her husband, which was very uh, admirable. But the reason she did it was because she was afraid Desi would cheat on me if, if I don't watch him 24 hours a day. She felt like if he's not my husband on the show, we'll be spending too many hours apart and I, I can't trust him not to cheat. So the sad thing is she did the right thing. She made CBS have this interracial marriage on TV, but she did it because she didn't want him to cheat and he cheated anyway. And so given that she was so confident in her choices in what seems like most other areas of, of her life, what do you think is the source of insecurity for her that almost normalized cheating in her marriage? Like it seemed like even in the book, because obviously cheating is occurring quite a bit in the book. And I think most people now it's like there's one person cheats and the marriage is over. And why wasn't she thinking like that? And particularly given that it's not like she had to worry about money or anything like that. Like what was, what was going on in her head? Well, I mean, I, I don't want to psychoanalyze her too much because, you know, she's a real person, but, uh, and I'm not a trained professional who ever met her, but I think, uh, you know, uh, we screw could, that. <laughs> yeah, we could we're just speculate. talking. Yeah, we're just talking. No one's listening. <laughs> we, uh, I think we can speculate a little bit um, about that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it's, well, she really loved him. I mean, he had this real sway over her. He was very charismatic and, and very attractive guy. But also, I think she was um, abandoned by her parents in a very real and devastating way. Her father died when she was a young girl. So that's hard, obviously. And then her mom quickly remarried and left her, not with her grandparents, but her step-grandparents. So imagine you're a young kid, your dad just died, and all of a sudden your mom's remarried and you're staying with these people, these old people you don't even know. And so for years, she lived apart from her mom and then her mom would come and go from her life. And so I think she was really desperate for love and had a real fear of being abandoned. So, you know, I, <laughs> I did it. I, I did speculate even, uh, in public. <laughs> yeah, I know you speculated a lot. So, okay, so this... I don't want to give away, I don't know how much you want to talk about the finer details of the book, but this occurs in the first chapter, which is a character who, by the way, I didn't realize at first, this is my own naivete, but you're the character in the first chapter who comes up to her in this party and meets her is your, uh, a fictionalized version of your grandfather, Isidore Strauss. And basically they, you know, have an attraction between them. And throughout the book, she's kind of wondering, what is the attraction? I mean, it seems like he was a, he had his own charisma. She would go back and forth between, is it his looks? Is it the conversation? Is it their 
kind of lust for each other? Is it his, the fact that he's like a normal guy and not in this, you know, very flashy scene where everybody's cheating on each other and, and so on. And meanwhile, your grandfather is, uh, or, or Isidore in the book is, is kind of really diving deep to, to speculate on his own feelings. I mean, he's, he's married to Harriet in the, in, in the book, your grandmother, and you know, he's dealing with the guilt, but, and his also his attraction to his wife and his feelings about his wife. And, but he's like a, obsessively attracted almost to, to Lucille Ball. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I think it's all the things you mentioned. I, I think she was angry at her husband who was a, someone she loved, but who disappointed her a lot. And I think she want. I mean, fame is tough. Uh, you know, I've known a few famous people and it just seems so hard, you know, I mean, I was friends with, uh, two celebrities who passed away. Philip Seymour Hoffman was a very good friend of a very good friend of mine. So I knew Philip pretty well. And I, I, I became friendly with Carrie Fisher. And I saw in both of them how difficult it is to be famous, especially Carrie. Uh, I mean, that's a real intense fame, you know? And I, and I think, that, not to be glib about it, but I think it really is why, in a big way, why both of them are no longer here. And so I felt like for her, this normal guy would have been would have been seductive, just the normality of it. And with my grandfather, you know, that was the real challenge of the book. I mean, I've written about infidelity before, but when I'm writing about my grandparents, I felt like, okay, I have to be really, I wanted to do it in a way that honored both of them because it's easy to write infidelity when you say, okay, well, one of the people in the marriage is boring and so the other one is distraught because the marriage is unhappy. But I, feel, I realize that's kind of a simplification. And people sometimes cheat if the marriage is better than that. So I thought, you know, if both people are compelling, then what what would push someone to cheat? And I was thinking about this, you know. Um, I, I say in the book that in in books like Anna Karenina, you know, there's the, the husband. So in that book, Anna's married to this guy Karenin, who is a – is a bore. He's just a, a terrible bore. And she leaves him for this very sexy, attractive guy named Vronsky. And so it's about, that book's about her leaving Karenin for the sexy Vronsky. And I realized, you know, I think in relationships, every spouse is both Karenin and Vronsky. Like everyone starts out as Vronsky. It goes in reverse. Everyone starts out as Vronsky and ends up Karenin. You know, when you first meet someone, if the relationship is any good, then you think they're the best. And then 20 years into marriage, everyone becomes a little bit, even, you know, I'm in a very good marriage, I think, but, you know, everyone becomes a little commonplace. I'm sure my wife doesn't feel as excited to see me walk in the room after 22 years as she did when I, you know, when we first started dating. So I wanted to examine that a little bit too. After, you know, we talked about big stories earlier in the podcast. I felt like I haven't read many love stories that actually deal with what it's like to be in a long relationship. You know, I, I, I was really influenced by books like love in the time of cholera that get into you know obsession and love and where those things overlap and what it's like to be in a in a long marriage i haven't seen many books do that lately american literary books do that lately so i thought that's another big topic i wanted to dive into well it it reminds me of uh the last scene in the graduate right so he's he spends his whole time the whole movie trying to you know they both are kind of ultimately dancing around this love story, 
which culminates in them like in the back of a bus with her in her wedding dress from who she was supposed to get married to. And you kind of get this sense that, oh, now there's the next 40 years of their, of your life, of their life. It may not go as well as they thought. You, you get this sense right at that last scene, just in his eyes. And, uh, uh, but there was so much drama leading up to this point that it, it had to happen this way. Yeah. I think that's the great point and a great scene. I think that that scene takes the movie and actually moves it from entertainment into art. Like that's a, it's a really fun romantic comedy or sort of sexual farce, you know, like the older woman and the younger man. And, and then that moment is so profound because it's the only, it's the only romantic comedy I can think of where after the, after the romance and the comedy is over, it, it shows real life in a really intense way with just a shot. And that's a great, that's great filmmaking right there, I think. So there's this parallel, of course, in this book, between your book and Lucille Ball's story, which is that she mixes fact with fiction. Her husband on the show is her husband in real life. Her kids on the show, I believe, are her kids in real life. Or, or maybe not, I don't know, but it Actually, seems that no, way. They, they, it's, it's complicated, too, but... The guy playing her, the kid playing her son, was actually a real life son's best friend. Okay, but he has, and he has the name of her son, so it's all mixed together. Mm-hmm. Or he's little Ricky instead of Desi Junior. But you obviously, you know, reached in and pulled out of your own story, your grandfather, his relationship with her. All the characters in the book have real inner lives. There's no villains. They're always wondering about their choices and their opportunities. Maybe. Desi has this particular cruelty as he de- doesn't really care. And this is in real life. No, I'm not even talking about your book. It's in real life, it seems, too. He doesn't really care about the effect of his actions on, on Lucille Ball. But what what made you decide? Was this the impetus for the book? Was some kind of, did your grandfather tell you a story, as as you suggest in the book? Or what, what happened there? Um, well, thanks, yeah, first of all, for talking about the not being villains, because I think that's an important thing in books, which... Uh, you don't see often enough. I feel like there's a great line from Saul Bellow where he said, when you write well, you become familiar with due process. And so, you know, you want to be like the defense attorney for all your villains and the prosecutor for all your heroes. I think you want to be like, yeah, she seems great, but here's where she's not hundred percent perfect. And he seems like a total villain, but here's where he's, here's why he's doing that. And for the, for my book, I had this, I had a dream about Lucille Ball and I thought, I don't know why, but I thought, well, that'd be a good story. I don't even know what caused me to think that. And I, I wrote down Lucille Ball and Papa Izzy. So I, I just had this weird dream. I woke up, wrote that down, and went back to sleep and looked at it the next morning and thought, what the hell is that? And then I realized, so I asked around, and I realized that my grandfather had been at a party with Lucille Ball, and I must have heard about this when I was a kid. And so Donald Trump's father, and this is all true, Donald Trump's father, when he bought a bunch of real estate um, on Coney Island, the old uh, amusement park outside of New York City, he he built a bunch of crappy housing, as Trump's dad did. And so there's this um, landmark, this beautiful glass and steel structure called the Cathedral of Fun. It was a historic, beautiful building, and Trump's dad was going to tear it down and make crappy housing. And so in order to blunt the criticism from the press, because he knew that it wasn't going to be a popular thing, he was a very good manip- manipulator of the press, like his son. And so he thought, I'll throw a party, and I'll have a bunch of celebrities there. And at the stroke of midnight, we'll all throw bricks through the glass, and we'll take pictures, and that'll be how we break ground on this new project. 
and it worked and there wasn't that much negative press it was all like oh here's celebrities throwing bricks <laughs> and hard to believe when you read about it today but you know my grandfather was a real estate guy who knew trump's dad and lucille ball was a celebrity and and so i think that's where they met and uh, so that scene is the opening of the book where um you know trump's father's doing this thing and i you know i felt like that was sort of resonant you know with, with today's situation um a modern trump moment destroying something historical and beautiful about the country and i would say my grandfather had this incredible skill he's like the only one who could do this i think he was the only guy who's got the business skill to inherit like five or six new york city high-rises and lose everything anyway like he, he somehow had this anti-talent of ending up broke when you have investments that seem foolproof like he was a real estate mogul in new york city and by the time he died he was worth nothing so he was just a terrible terrible businessman and uh, and that's something i was always interested in as well and how does someone it, he wanted to be a writer and i think that's probably why i was a writer because i always knew he wanted to write but he was from an old world family his father came over from russia and said you have to take over the business and so he did and then he ran into the ground and so did he meet lucille ball at that party and that's the story i mean i haven't been able to actually confirm it factually but that's the story that that's I've what gotten. he told you he didn't tell me no my fa people in my family said that's what they heard um and 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 you imply he really did have that script treatment as well and that's what you were trying to pitch at that's William Morris. That's, that's totally invented. There was no oh. script treatment. Yeah, I mean, the book mixes facts and fiction, so I didn't. He didn't have that script treatment. He wanted to be a poet. He uh, so in the book, um, uh, James and I share an agent, and so I I, uh, I made her a character, and I had my younger self go to her with this proposal, and she was sort of like, "No, get out of here." But that wasn't really how we met. I just threw that in to, for for fun. Yeah, I was confused because you, this is like years after you wrote the very successful Chang and Eng, so I assumed you you had representation. <laughs> yeah, so. no, I, I, I uh, yeah, I became, she was only my agent since 2011, I think. So the script that your grandfather fictionally presents to Lucille Ball, this is what I was wondering, is that it was obviously a ridiculous script to be produced in Hollywood in the early 50s because it's about a freed slave in the 1860s. There would be like zero movies about this in the 1950s. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the jokes of the book in a way where I thought like, um, they were saying in the, in the 50s, like uh, you, could, you can't make a book, you can't make a movie about an African-American man. And now in 2020, they would say, you can't make a movie about an African-American man because he he's the white, he's a white, filmmaker or white writer. So they, in the fifties, they would say, you can't write about someone because, because um, he's black. And now they'd say you can't because you're white, write about, about someone because he's black. So. Yeah. And also, again, it parallels her story a little bit where she's taking chances, bringing Desi Arnaz, a Cuban onto her show, which is something you couldn't do, but she was able to do. Yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting too. Like I realized this in research in the book that, Every episode of that show was basically a, a comic reenactment of her life because she always wanted to succeed and kept failing and wanted to get on the show, so to speak. And every episode is a woman who they say is not talented trying to get onto Desi's show. Yeah. 
it's this quest, this kind of American dream of this quest for fame or relevance or whatever you want to call it. And let, let me ask you this, like you're, you're from Brooklyn. You've been writing, you've, you've won literary awards. You've written these great novels. Also, by the way, a, a, a great memoir, Half a Life, which is about this pivotal moment in the first half of your life. And I don't know, your neighbors are probably, you know, the Jonathans, like Jonathan Leatham, Jonathan Saffron Foer. And what's, their stuff so literary. I'm not gonna, I'm not, I, it's beautiful, but again, it's, it's not like the everyday person is going to read, you know, a 500 page literary novel about old Brooklyn. But what do you think was the stamp of their careers? Like they had, they had this, this beautiful arc in their careers uh, in terms of, you know, was it their awards or what happens in New York City with with with, liter with the literati? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, I know Jonathan Lethem. He and I were in a poker game together for a while um, with a bunch of other writers. It was writers poker. It was me. It's broken up now. Uh, but it was me, Jonathan Lethem, Colson Whitehead, Myla Goldberg, uh, who wrote BCs, and Nathan Englander. And that was really fun. Uh, Nathan Englander, by the way, great short story writer. Colson Whitehead just wrote a book about poker. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a shark. He's a real shark, Colson. Uh, he's really good at it. Um, and then Jonathan Seffenfower uh, teaches with me at NYU. I think that's the thing about New York. It is uh, there. It's so hard to live here, and we talked about this a little bit before. The troubles it's had recently and everything, and all those are true. But I think you know, there's something about being in a place where there are so many people who want something. I remember someone said, whatever you're into, whatever it is, good or bad, if you live in New York City, you can find other people who are into that thing. And you know, if you're a writer, you'll you'll you know, you'll find other really good writers here. It's just there's something about that that's so exciting. You know, I, I grew up in Long Island, um, and I didn't you know, only twenty five miles outside of New York City, and I didn't know anyone growing up who was doing anything creative. I had no roadmap my parents uh had no friends who were doing anything creative and so i was totally on my own and then but coming here it was like i found this community of people who wanted the same things and were trying to do the same things and that's that's something that i think is really valuable yeah the great thing about new york city is that and i've i've felt this since i was a kid is that no matter it's like what you say no matter what you're interested in there's a subculture in new york city catering very specifically no matter how narrow that niche is and not only is there a subculture for it but the best people in the world are in that subculture in new york city and you could interact with them and learn from them and be friends with them and your careers could rise up with other people who will eventually be the best in the world in the category as you all grow up together i mean there was so many different subcultures that i've had the pleasure to be a part of in the past 50 years almost 40 years uh, since I was a little kid. And that is the great thing about New York City. And, and I'm not sure of any other city that that replicates that. I mean, maybe you could say Paris in the 1920s, post-World War One, But uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing about about New York. And Yeah, I mean, you go on the subway and you hear musicians in the subway who, you know, saxophone players just playing for free. And you think, yeah, there's probably not a guy who's as good as that in all of Trenton or whatever, you know, not, not to... Now I just I'll never sell a book in Trenton again, but but you know you know what I mean. Big loss, 
It's <laughs> <laughs> one of the huge audiences, all the Lucille Ball fans. So, so another thing I, it's worth mentioning as the, well, first of all, I wanted to ask when you decided, okay, I'm going to be a writer, you know, and this is kind of coming down almost from, from your family, your, you say your grandfather wanted to be a writer. Uh, how many years of loss and rejection did you experience before Chang and Eng? I got pretty lucky with Chang and Eng. Uh, I, uh, I went to graduate. Well, I, I guess my loss and rejection, a lot of it came, well, it always comes though. That, that's the thing you, you realize about writing that you always get rejected from, in some way, which I'll get to in a second, I guess. But, you know, I, my rejection, I guess, first came, I didn't get into any of the graduate schools I applied to. So I, I wanted to go to NYU or Columbia. I wanted to stay in New York and I didn't get into either of those two schools. But then seven years later, I was teaching at those both schools, which made me feel like really, pretty good. But, uh, but you know, it was hard, you know, when people tell you, you're no good, you believe it. Actually, someone was telling me that recently, my friend, the, the writer David Lipsky was saying the difference between writers and other people or pe pe people who succeed at writing and, and people who don't is often a self delusion maybe where most people, if someone says you're no good, you sort of believe it and you try something else where I think there's so much rejection writing that if people tell you, you're no good, you just, a lot of us are like, okay, well, I guess I'll make it better. Like, you know, and now that's a very valuable skill because I know that my first draft isn't so great. I think a lot of people will get notes in their first draft and think, oh, I'm not a good writer. Whereas now I've been writing long enough where I know, okay, this draft isn't good, but I can make it good. And so, so what were you like? Did you write a, a bunch of novels that were rejected or was like, what's the, where's your classic origin story of rejection? <laughs> I got lucky. I, I, uh, I sold that book um, pretty soon after grad school. So I, I got lucky with that, uh, with that book, Chang and Ang, my first one. I, but uh, as I was saying, rejection comes all the time. Like, you know, even after you have a hit book or you win a bunch of awards, you know, I, I'll send the story to the New Yorker and I'll say no, or, you know, you get a bad review. So I just think that that's the thing about a career in the arts that is hard on people's psyches. Like I read that Philip Roth never won the Pulitzer Prize and that tortured him forever. And he felt rejected. This is Philip Roth who, you know, was the most successful literary writer in America probably for a long time, but he never won the Pulitzer Prize. I, I was reading Saul Bellow's letters and, you know, Saul Bellow, one of the few Americans who actually did win the Nobel Prize. And he, in his letters, is always complaining about rejections and how the New Yorker never takes any of his stories and all this stuff. And I just realized, wow, if Saul Bellow and Philip Roth feel that way, it's just, it's not a career that is good for the, for your self-confidence because there's rejection at every level all the time. I, th I think any career that gives you inner pleasure. So like, let's say, I'm not saying a marketing manager for, Procter and Gamble is not happy with their job. They could be very happy, but like writing or acting or, you know, any type of individualist career is going to, it's worth it because there's a lot of pleasure, but it's very competitive. So there's going to be a lot of rejection. So you need tools to deal with the rejection. I think writer has to deal with, you know, a multiple sources of income to, to use a cliched phrase and B you have to be able to navigate not only career rejection, but people who hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you mentioned that I have a, a memoir that I wrote and that was even harder in that one. 
because it's hard enough if you write a book, you spend a couple of years writing it and, and it's just out in the world and people just say bad things about it sometimes. But if you write a memoir and they're like, yeah, I really didn't like, <laughs> like this character. Someone was telling me that they wrote a memoir and it was rejected because everyone said, I really don't like the protagonist. And the person was like, that's me, you know? So, <laughs> so it's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. That's a Curb Your Enthusiasm joke too, because, you know, Larry David's hanging out with, uh, Jason Alexander, who played George Costanza, who's the Larry David character, and Jason Alexander saying, "Oh, I was playing such a schmuck," and Larry David said, eh, "Not really," and, <laughs> and so they kind of had that discussion. Um, well, well, yeah. You, so you you've done memoirs, comics. Uh, I think I read you do, you've done a couple of screenplays, right? Or hired were hired to do some screenplays. I wrote the screenplay um, for my first book, Changanang, which was never made. Uh, I sold it to Disney and uh, wrote the screenplay with the director, Julie Taymor. And it was really unlucky. The president of Disney got fired right before it went into production. And then I wrote it again with the actor Gary Oldman. I wrote a totally different draft of it. And that never happened. But, you know, that that was fun. So, I've been, yeah, I've been doing some screenwriting stuff. And now I'm writing a script for my memoir. So hopefully that'll happen. It's, it's, an, it's a much different art form. So it's been sort of a... It's it's actually helpful when you go back to books because the screenplay is so story driven you can't have any excess fat. So then when you go back to writing novels, I think it's actually quite helpful. Yeah, it feels like exposition, you know, kind of like setting the scene has to be. Of course, it has to be shown because there's zero telling, and so you know it's all dialogue. Screenplays, dialogue, and action. Yeah, and 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 so. And every scene has to serve the story. You can't, I mean, you know, a lot of literary books you read and there'll be a scene and you think, well, why was that there? It doesn't happen so often in movies, you know? Because someone's paying millions of dollars for each scene, you know? Right. And now, of course, there's the the new genre of the, the Netflix special miniseries, which I feel this book, The Queen of Tuesday, you're, you're the novel about Lucille Ball, this feels to me like Netflix's I Love Lucy. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I think we're we're trying we're talking you know there's, there's a a competing Lucille Ball project I think that is maybe uh, um, complicating things but I think it's so different because there's a there's a um, Aaron Sorkin I guess is maybe going to do a a biopic of Lucille Ball but this is so different I think that you know this is the love yeah. story between my grandfather and Lucille Ball so we're it's actually out right now I question say this to to Emma Stone so we'll see what happens you know knock on wood well uh... I probably just jinxed it. No, I, I don't know. There's, there's, there's gotta be, you know, now with Netflix, Amazon, HBO Max, Disney plus, and a billion other things, correct me if I'm wrong, there's gotta be huge demand for stories. Yeah, I, th I think there is. And that's, you know, I, I think that also the, the miniseries is such an interesting, um, such an interesting form that it, it's, it's not constrained like a movie. So you can do it's very novelistic, I think, you know, like a six hour, a two hour movie rarely gets the scope of a good book, I think, but a six hour movie could, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, Darren Strauss, thanks for talking to me, author of The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story. And uh, of course, also we talked about uh, Chang and, and Eng, and we talked about your memoir, A Half Life, and Olivia Twist comic book series thanks james yeah no, it was so great to be here i it's a great podcast so i'm really i'm really uh thrilled and, and and honored to be a part of it it's great talking to you yeah thank you and um and i definitely recommend the book and i and 
I love Lucille Ball also, so thanks for writing this. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to read yours. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.